Hi, this is Tanya, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, October 8th, and this is your Sunday Sermon. We're continuing in our sermon series, Lessons from Nehemiah. In today, part 9, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 39, and we're going to talk about making investments that last. It's going to be a great discussion today, but before we get going, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you. We celebrate you. Lord, you are awesome. Lord, thank you for this amazing word we're going to hear today from the book of Nehemiah. God, we're so excited about it. Can't wait to get into it. Thank you for this opportunity. Open our hearts and minds to receive you today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen and Amen. I heard about this man who bought a parrot. It was a beautiful parrot, but he had a really bad mouth. He could swear for five minutes straight without even repeating himself. The man was embarrassed because the bird was driving him crazy in front of people. He tried to appeal to the bird by asking him to clean up his language. The parrot promised to change, but nothing ever happened. In fact, his swearing increased in both volume and frequency. It got to such a problem that the guy grabbed the bird by the throat and started shaking him and yelled, quit it! But this just made the parrot more angry and he swore more and more. Then the guy got really mad one day and he locked him in the kitchen cabinet. That really aggravated the bird and he started clawing and scratching and making all kinds of racket. Then the guy finally let him out. The parrot let loose with a stream of swear words that made the man blush. At that point, the guy was so ticked off that he threw him into the freezer. For the first few seconds, the bird squawked and screamed and thrashed around a bit, but then there was silence. At first, the guy just waited, and then he started to wonder if the bird was hurt. After a couple of minutes of not hearing anything, he was so worried that he opened the freezer door. The bird calmly climbed onto the man's outstretched arm and said, I am really sorry about all the trouble I've been giving you. I make a solemn promise and vow to clean up my language from now on. The man was astounded. He couldn't believe the transformation that had come over the parrot just for being in the freezer for a couple of minutes. The parrot then turned to the man and said, I just have one question. What did the chicken do? A little humor to start today, but I think you get the point. Today, we're going to be learning about four vows or promises that the people of God made in Nehemiah chapter 10. I'm going to talk more about those specifically a little later on in the sermon. But right now, I'd like to talk about the general idea of making a vow or vow making. While God's people were not thrown into the freezer, they did feel the sting of God's spoken word in chapters 8 and 9. After hearing what God wanted them to do and owning their own persistent rebellion, Nehemiah 9.38 says the people made a binding agreement to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. They put it in writing and they sealed it. Putting a seal on a document is a serious matter because it meant taking a solemn oath before the Lord. That's what the essence of a vow is. Those who agreed to this covenant are listed in chapter 10 verses 1 to 27. The law governing oaths and vows is found in Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 and it says, A man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. Since an oath involved the name and possible judgment of God, it was not to be taken lightly. 
Jesus also warned against using empty oaths in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. The Bible contains many examples of people making vows and covenants with God only to break them later on. For example, in Exodus 24, verse 7, the Israelites promise, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. But in less than six weeks, these very same people built a golden calf and bowed down and started worshiping it. In Mark 14, 29, Peter promises Jesus, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Hours later, Peter responds to a servant girl's question by swearing in verse 71, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. Well, that leads me to a question. Are vows of any use today? I think they are, folks. I think they are for at least two reasons. First, they help us to focus. When you make a vow, you're saying that you're going to do something specific. We can say, Lord, I need to witness more. Or we can say, I'm going to invite my neighbor to bring a friend Sunday and fellowship lunch, and I'm going to give them a book so that I can open up a conversation with them. Second, vows allow us to express our love. That's why couples make vows during a marriage ceremony. They are the language of love. Love is more than just a feeling. It's a commitment, pledge, or promise to be married until death do you part. God is a covenant-keeping God, even when we don't keep our end of the deal. You may have made some promises to God in the past that you haven't kept. You may have broken some vows, and if you have, you're not alone. Jeremiah 31:32 says, This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. We see in this verse that God's people broke the covenant on a regular basis. Verse 33 says that he will one day make a new covenant in which he says, I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus inaugurated this new covenant. Listen to what he said in Mark 14, 24. This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. In the old covenant, we are expected to live up to our end completely. In other words, everything comes from us. In the new covenant, nothing comes from us and everything from Jesus. Because of his grace, we can surrender, submit, and obey out of love, not fear. While it may be helpful to make a vow or an oath to God today, remember this. We don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God. We succeed because we believe the promises of God and we act on them. Having said that, many of us never come to the point of getting serious in our walk with God simply because we never get specific with him. We hear sermons and sense the Spirit's tug at our heart, but until we decide to completely be committed to him, we won't be. So that's the background of making a vow. Now let's turn our attention to the actual vows the Israelites made after hearing God's word. There were four of them. The first vow was submission to God's word. Look at verse 29 of the text. It says, All these now join their brothers and the nobles. They bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Can you see it here? They were totally serious in their desire to devote themselves to everything that's spelled out in the Bible. Let me ask you, friends, who does God use to make an impact? Is it super saints, heroes, pious religious people? No. Listen to the words of 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The key here is devotion. We need to remember that the depth of our devotion determines our impact. 
God is not looking all over the earth for strong people, for great people, or for perfect people, or even religious people. Today, as he scans the congregation at Word of Hope Christian Church or your local church congregation, he's looking for devoted disciples, for men and women and boys and girls who are fully committed to him. He's looking for a regular person who he can pour his strength out on. In order for that to happen, we need to be completely committed and dangerously devoted to Jesus. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was once asked what his secret was to his incredible ministry. This is what he said, and I quote, God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was. In Nehemiah 10, the people were saying that they were so seriously submitted to God and his word that they are willing for the curses of God to fall on them if they don't carefully obey what he says. I wonder if we have that same submission and dangerous devotion today. Does God have all of you? After submitting themselves to God and his word, the believers made a second vow, which was to be separate from the world. Verse 28 says, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. And verse 30 says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When you think about it, separation is simply total devotion to God, no matter what the cost. When a man and woman get married, they separate themselves from all other possible mates and give themselves completely to each other. We separate from others to the one who is our life mate. The Israelites separated from the peoples around them and to God and his word. This was not about ethnic pride or a sense of the Israelite gene pool being superior to other peoples. Rather, it had to do with how they worshipped God and honored him. Wrong relationships can nullify a believer's distinctive witness. God wanted his followers to be a missionary people, and so it was vital that their message not be corrupted. In declaring this prohibition, the Lord was concerned about both the purity of their faith and the holiness of their lives. They had been entrusted with the most wonderful message in the world and nothing was being allowed to corrupt it. There was at least two reasons, I think, why marriages with pagan people were disastrous. First, there were clear biblical warnings. When two people in the ancient world made a marriage agreement, they normally confirmed their commitment in the presence of their gods and gave each other's idols a prominent place in their new home. Joshua 23.13 says that the heathen spouses will be a snare and trap to you a whip for your backs and thorny brambles in your eyes. Secondly, there was abundant historical evidence that unequally yoked marriages led to a decline in Israel's spiritual and moral life. Nehemiah 13.26 asks this question, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon king of Israel sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. We're more influenced by other people than most of us care to admit. Mixed marriages were a danger then, and they're a danger now. God's concern is that when a believer marries a non-believer, the stage is set for conflict, compromise, and at times, outright conformity. 2 Corinthians 6.14 very clearly states, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? Now, let me be clear. For those who are married to an unsaved spouse, I respect and applaud that commitment to Christ 
and the determination to live out the teaching of 1 Peter 3, verses 2 and 3, which says, Your godly lives will speak to them better than any words. They will be won over by watching your pure godly behavior. I want to address those of you who are dating someone who is not a believer. It may seem harmless to date a non-Christian, but watch out. God cares about your spiritual life, and he cares about your ability to be a clear witness for him. On the authority of God's word, don't deliberately disobey God in this area. The question is not, will this relationship work out? But rather, will this relationship enjoy God's best blessing and fulfill God's will? I know this is not easy to hear, but if you're truly submitted to God and his word, you'll honor him in all your relationships as well. If you put God first, don't enter a dating or marriage relationship with someone who does not also put God first. After pledging themselves to submit to the word of God and live separated lives, the believers renewed the covenant with a third vow, and that is the Sabbath for God's people. Let me explain. Look at verse 31 of the text. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any other holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. In Nehemiah's time, it was necessary for God's law about the Sabbath to be clearly understood. First of all, this day was to be set aside to honor God. It was distinctive from other days and given to God so that they might offer their worship to him without being distracted by the demands of everyday life. Secondly, it was a rest day. Relaxation is a vital ingredient in effective living. God set the pattern for this in Exodus 20 verse 11, where it says, on the seventh day, he rested. The Israelites worked with no breaks in their weekly schedule when they were slaves in Egypt. God did not ever want this repeated again. One man challenged another to an all-day wood chopping contest. The challenger worked very hard, stopping only for a brief lunch break. The other man ate a leisurely lunch and took several breaks throughout the day. At the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other guy had chopped a lot more wood than he had. I don't get it, he said. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest, yet you chopped more wood than I did. The winning woodsman responded, didn't you notice I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest? If you're feeling a bit dull today, perhaps you need to plan to get some rest into your schedule so that you can get sharp again. Thirdly, it was a day to help others. Israelite employees had a compulsory rest day automatically written into their employment contracts. This helped others enjoy the blessings of rest. And fourthly, the Sabbath was a day to declare truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy and gave the Israelites multiple witnessing opportunities. To their unbelieving neighbors, it was proclaimed, in a very practical sense, the truth that God comes first. This is an important paradigm or model for us today, my friends. From the very beginning of the church, Christians made the Lord's Day their appointed day for worship, rest, service, and witness. While avoiding the legalism that the Pharisees fell into, most of us can do a much better job of looking for ways to keep Sunday special. The Israelites also promised to serve the sabbatical year. The end of verse 31 says, every seventh year we will forego working the land. So they were to let the land lie idle so that it might restore itself. To obey God in this way, they certainly needed to trust him with their needs during the seventh year. It seems to me that obedience to God always involves trust. We can't always see what's coming up, but if we're doing what God says, he'll never disappoint us. Their commitment to commemorate the sabbatical year was a great step of faith and is a beautiful illustration of Matthew 6.33, where it says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Now, notice that they also canceled all debts in verse 31. 
They promised that every seven years they would live out a renewed scale of values that people matter more than money. The keeping of the Sabbath and sabbatical years were more ways of saying no to a life of maximum acquisition. My highest goal is not to make the most that I can and spend the rest of my life trying to keep everything that I have. The people were promising to follow God's priorities by submitting to him, by separating from the world, and keeping the Sabbath. They also were promising to follow God in a fourth pledge, and that was supporting the work of God. Look at verse 39. It sums up their commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. I find this fascinating that in these closing verses, 32 to 39, the phrase house of our God is used nine times, and it refers to the restored temple. The temple in Jerusalem stood at the heart of the country's religious, moral, and spiritual life. In symbolic terms, it proclaimed the presence and power of God among the people and the centrality of spiritual matters. This passage covers an impressive series of promises to support God's work in a variety of different ways, and it gives us seven insights into how our giving can support God's work today. First of all, it was responsible giving. Look at verses 32 and 35, where the people say that we assume the responsibility. In other words, they owned it. And they gave what they owned because they saw it was their privilege and their responsibility. Second, it was obedient giving. They didn't practice impulse giving, but instead gave as an expression of practical obedience. Those who love him will do what he says. They were, as verse 32 says, carrying out the commands to give, as it is in verse 34 and 36, it says, is written in the law. So they are carrying out the commands to give, as it is written in the law. God had been good to his people and generosity was expected from them. There was nothing remotely optional about the support of God's work. Everyone was required to give in one form or another. This was yet another way to demonstrate that God comes first in their lives. Third, it was systematic. There was nothing haphazard about their giving. Verse 32 says that they were to bring a third of a silver shekel every year. Verse 34 states that lots were drawn to determine when families were to bring a contribution of wood at set times each year. Verse 35 tells us that the first fruits were brought each year. There was an order to these offerings and a system that was followed. The people knew precisely what was expected of them. The New Testament teaches systematic giving as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 16.2. It says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Next, number four, it was proportionate. The reference to the wood offering in verse 34 suggests that many poor people in Israel had an opportunity to make a gift to the Lord that would demand time rather than money. The temple needed a regular supply of firewood to keep the sacrificial fires burning. Everyone, regardless of income, could gather wood and take it to the temple. In addition, Israel's sacrificial system recognized that not everyone could make the same kind of offering. If someone could not afford the cost of a young bull, a male goat, or lamb, then they could offer two doves or young pigeons. If they couldn't even afford that, Leviticus 5.11 allowed them to bring some fine flour as an offering. It's not the amount that's given that's important. It's the spirit in which we make our offering. We should give in proportion to how we've been blessed. The New Testament echoes this principle in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Fifthly, it was sacrificial. Verse 35 says that they were to bring to God's house the first fruits of their crops and of every fruit tree. To offer the first of their crops is to declare to God that he is the giver of all things, that everything belongs to him, and that he's worthy of the best that we can offer. Here's a helpful principle to remember. 
While not everyone can give the same amount, everyone can make the same sacrifice, not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. It was Mother Teresa who once said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Amen. Number six, it was comprehensive. They were not only to bring their crops and their money. Verse 36 says they were also to bring their firstborn sons and their animals to the Lord. God is not just interested in our money. He wants our hearts. Actually, he wants everything. And number seven, it was prescribed. They were not only to bring their first, but also a tithe of their crops to the Lord in verse 37. Giving a tenth of their produce or income to the Lord has a long and dignified history among believers and actually is an appropriate guide for Christian giving. As someone has said, the tithe is a great place to start. I'm convinced that the tithe is the minimum we should bring as we give to further the Lord's work. Tithing can be such a great blessing. I practice it personally and I recommend it highly. But there are at least three dangers. Number one, it's easy to give with the wrong motives. We can give out of a sense of duty or fear or even greed. In other words, if I tithe, then God is going to prosper me. That is not necessarily true. We give in order to get so that we can give again. That, my friends, is the real point behind it all. Next, thinking that we can do whatever we want with the remaining 90%. If we tithe 10%, that means I can do whatever I want with the remaining 90%. Well, there's a problem with that, and we should talk to the Lord about it clearly. And thirdly, giving only the tithe and failing to give love offerings to the Lord. The tithe has always been described, at least that's how I learned it, as more than your regular commitment, your regular offering. Or perhaps there's a love offering that you might give, a special event that's happening at church, a special cause or need. That giving should come above and beyond anything that we've committed already to the Lord in our tithes and offerings. Someone has said that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, let's determine to be like the believers of Nehemiah 10, 39 and say, we will not neglect the house of our God. I don't know about you, but I want to give to the Lord. Let me bring this sermon to a close with a question. Are you on the wrong runway? On October 31st, 2000, a Singapore Airlines jumbo jet crashed on takeoff, killing 83 of the 179 people on board. Investigators have determined that the jet was on the wrong runway when it tried to take off during a typhoon. The pilot realized at the last moment that he was on a runway closed for repairs and plowed into some heavy construction equipment as he tried to take off. Seconds before the jetliner crashed, caught fire, and broke into three sections, the pilot swore and screamed out, Something there! Apparently, the pilot knew what runway he was supposed to be on and was not misdirected by the control tower. However, officials admitted there was no barrier set up to block planes from going onto that closed runway. In addition, the lights on this runway were turned on because of the typhoon. I'm wondering today, you know, I'm wondering today, my friends, if any of you who are listening to this message today or with us in person or watching the video are on the wrong runway. It might look like everything is going okay in your life, but you actually might be headed for a crash. The Bible is clear. If you do things your way, you're going to have a collision. God wants you and me to make investments that last by submitting to God. Well, that answers the question, who's the pilot of your life? By separating from the world, that covers who we spend time with. By practicing a Sabbath rest, 
That deals with how we spend our time. And lastly, supporting God's work. That involves how we spend our money. If you're submitted to God and he has all of you, then you're cleared for takeoff in your relationships with your time and with your finances. But if you're not submitted to God, if he doesn't have all of you, then why not taxi yourself back to the gate and plug into the only power source, the one and only power source that can prepare you for takeoff? Why not plug yourself in? Why not give your heart to Jesus Christ? And everyone said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.